You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 19 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 27th of August. My name's Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. And Oliver Davis. Hi, everyone. So how have you guys been? Have you uh, been up to much, all? A uh, busy few weeks, actually. I've been uh, entertaining some visitors who've come to visit. And uh, in the next few days, I'll be moving house, flying to the UK, organising a stag do, writing a speech for a wedding, best man's speech, and then I'll be off to France to host the Surf Simply trip to Hossegor this year. You have been a busy boy. Will be a couple of weeks. Are you letting all the tasks that you have to do, uh, like are you putting them all off day by day by day until you've got like 42 hours before you leave, and then you're going to try and squeeze everything into that? I think the Spanish word is um, avestruz, which means ostrich burying its head in the sand, <laughs> which is what I tend to do. I find it's a very effective approach for problems. Now, I was asked to be a best man just a couple of days ago, which I've never done before. I didn't know that. And I was from a mutual friend. Who's, uh-huh. I, don't think his, I don't think he's proposed yet, so we probably shouldn't say his name. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that he checked with me whether I was going to be with be- his best man before he checked with his wife before she was going to marry him. <laughs> it occurred to me that being best man would mean that I'd be sitting through most of the wedding nervous about what is essentially meant to be the stand-up bit of comedy light relief in the You are going to be terrible. Party. The amount that you get worried when you and Ollie are going to do a guitar piece at a drunken party... <laughs> But you see, you're, I imagine you've been West Man a few times, so you're pretty quite relaxed about the whole the, thing. The last time I did Best Man was the Best Man. I can honestly say I nearly had a panic attack like I, I, on the lead up. As it came, it was like exponentially bad on the lead up, and then the last sort of closing minutes, somehow I managed to just calm down and get on with it. But it was it was pretty intense. Did you feel like a sort of a celebrity who's just finished the performance after the best man speech and then swan around the party? Yes, sort of. But I sort of felt like I was ready to die as well <laughs> with because the nerves and everything released and the adrenaline died down. And I was like, OK, now I feel like I could just probably lose consciousness because I was so tense and so tight and so worried for so long. And then it was done. And I was like, but it was pleasant it was very nice so I have been looking at cameras a lot this week as I've mentioned on the show before and as you guys know I spend a lot of time swimming around shooting our guests with the GoPro camera Mm -hmm. uh, which I really enjoy doing because I can see how everyone's getting on I can see how everyone's coaching and I really enjoy the process of taking photos but the GoPro just limits you in as far as you've only got that fisheye lens where you're in really close yeah and also the dynamic range of the gopro isn't amazing you tend to get light colors and dark colors tend to just kind of merge into one a little bit mm-hmm. so i've been looking at a lot of other cameras thinking you're going well, you pro know, are you well i was thinking about a step up you know yeah. you would think that there's a lot of information online about well what what's the next step up if you don't want to spend ten thousand dollars but you just want to go like one camera up that gives you a bit more versatility with lenses and whatnot it's always struck me that there seems to be a large gap there's like the go GoPro that's what does it retail at now the newest GoPro like $400 or something yeah it's depending which one like four or five hundred yeah so so even getting one of the better ones like you're only spending four or five hundred dollars as opposed to what you'd spend on like an SLR with a housing there seems to be nothing kind of is that what you're talking about like kind of nothing in between yeah so that's really what I found Sony have got a compact camera and I don't get put off by the fact that it's called a compact. It's the Sony RX100 Mark IV, and it is the most amazing compact camera you've ever seen. I mean, it gets compared to DSLRs, and that pretty much ticks all the boxes. It comes in at under a grand. Um, mm-hmm. 
and yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic camera. The problem with it is the battery life. It only takes 280 shots, and then that's it. And I usually take 1,500 shots when I'm out, you know, in bursts of 30 yeah. when I'm out doing a session. So that's really no good. And the uh, the oh, the, actually, the rapid fire capability of it's pretty good. It's it does like uh, 16 frames a second. Mm-hmm. So anyway, long story short, and I'm putting this out in the podcast for a reason. Long story short, if you're going to make a step up from a GoPro and you want an in-water camera that's going to have the battery life and it's going to have the be able to put different lenses on so you can shoot not just really close up to people but further away and get that nice dynamic range and a much richer photo than the GoPro to really warrant actually upgrading, you really want to be looking at the new Canon 7D Mark II. So for that, you're looking at like a $1,500 body then you're looking at a lens, and a, probably a 50mm lens for shooting in the water is going to be around the sort of 600 to $1,000 mark, depending mm-hmm. on a few of the variables. Yeah. And then you want to get like a naughty cam, which to me always sounds like a, a porno webcam, but naughty cam actually <laughs> make housing, underwater housings for cameras. And that's about another three grand. So you're looking to step up from the GoPro at about seven grand. Big it's, jump. Yeah, it makes you realize how much value there is in just the GoPro. Yeah, you know the the value for money of it is insane. Uh huh. Yeah, just I mean, kind of gone for simplicity because I'm guessing that the camera you were talking about, the Sony with the battery life, that's probably starting to get to a point where you've got the display. You know what I mean? Where you've you can see the the photo that you've just taken basically, and then yeah. you get all sorts of complications with a bigger, more complicated camera. And it makes you realise that the GoPro is actually... It's a good little product, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, the GoPro have, have dealt with it really well because they've got that wide fisheye lens, which means that purely in terms of composition, you have to be really close to your subject. And the fact that you have to be really close to your subject to take a picture means that they don't have to deal with all of the extra processing power and requirements of being further away from a subject. So they've kind of done quite a clever thing there. They've just put a compositional <coughs> limiter that anyone using the camera is not going to notice the limitations of the camera because they're always going to put it really close to their subject. Yeah. Which is, is actually a really smart thing to do. But I thought I'd put it out there because I thought, you know, we've got to have listeners, listeners that, are, that know about cameras and underwater housing. And, you know, we've got a team of photographers here at Surf Simply that really know a lot about cameras, but I'm really the only one who's doing a lot of in-water photography and I'm relatively new to it. So if anyone's out there and they know of a camera which is, a sort of a step up from the GoPro where you can have interchangeable lenses where you've got a good battery life and good rapid bursts that's well, presumably it doesn't in the necess- sort of one to $5,000 range. That would be really, really interesting. I'd be really keen to hear from you. Presumably it doesn't have to necessarily be an interchangeable lens. It just needs to be a zoom lens. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. The other thing I've been doing this week, which has been super interesting, again, I feel a bit like I've gone to university learning about a whole new subject, is uh, we've been pro- progressing with uh, Surf Simply's line of apparel that we're producing. So yeah, I've been chatting nice. a lot with an amazing lady called Erica Togashi, who is formerly of J. Crew and Patagonia and Deus, who's designing all of our line of Surf Simply uh, swimwear, men's and women's swimwear and surfwear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's been just kind of interesting. She's been educating me about cuts and seams and materials and she sent this big swab there's like a big envelope full of materials over from indonesia where she is at the moment and so we were on skype and she's like okay dip this bit of material in a glass of water and now rub it against your face and now stretch it against your nose and kind of doing all these kind of tests to work out which are the right materials for the board shorts so uh yeah that's been super interesting too yeah how about you h-bomb what have you been up to you've been Um, out surfing your finless board quite a bit yeah, we've had some unseasonally small waves the last two weeks. And I've got one of the finless Alaya boards, that, uh, what's it called, the Seaglass Project made, the Albacore. And it's it's almost like a, a boogie board and an Alaya got together and made a love child. 
<laughs> and it's it's good in the steeper waves, right? So well, you've got something more to sort of hold on to. Yeah, it's funny. It, it's it's quite hard to surf in big waves, but the thing that's really tough actually is soft waves because it it needs the water to be kind of hitting the bottom of the board really at, at a, as close to 90 degrees as possible and as soon as you've got a really soft wave face it just sort of slips down the side of the the wave and you find yourself falling on your face yeah yeah um i did a lot of uh, sliding down the front of soft waves <laughs> trying to do kind of bottom turn and just having the thing spin 720 degrees before i went straight over the handlebars on it yeah i don't think you're really pu- pulling bottom turns on those boards though like- well here's the funny thing like you you can do but it it's the technique is so tough i i had a go i did did any of you guys see the julian wilson edit that came out a few weeks ago oh i know and, i mean because uh, actually i watched it after i'd been for that session because i thought oh well it's Clearly, the board, not me, that's yeah. the problem. And then Julian Wilson was getting barreled and doing airs and off the tops on a little finless 4.8, I think. Yeah, tiny little board. But, but uh, yeah, again, finless and foam and, uh, and, and managing to bottom turn. And if you look at, at uh, Derek Hines surfing out in J-Bay, you know, it's very, he might still manages to surf top to bottom. It's just there's a different technique to the bottom turn. You have to really learn to engage your rail. But I bet there's like an optimal wave size, as in like the bigger the wave, the faster you're going, and then the harder it's going to be to get that board to stick into the wave face. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the faster you're going, it's going to be harder to actually get that board to stick into the water. Because that's kind of what it is, isn't it? Without fins, you just need that board to actually, the bulk of it to be stuck into the wave face. Well, slightly. In order but, to give you the control. Slightly, but then think about boogie board. You know, you've got guys throwing themselves into huge, huge waves and they're still setting the rail. Yeah, but yours is quite a big, bulky board. There's it's quite a lot to it. Yeah, but the rails are the same. Yeah, and, and, and remember that, that getting the board, like the longer the rail, the easier it is to engage that rail and get it going. Same as, you know, a long board versus a short board. As long as you get that rail engaged, it's going to give you a lot more speed and projection. So my board's got, got two extra feet of rail compared to a boogie board. Uh-huh. But actually, it, if the rail's engaged, it's engaged. It'll if it's hold. not, it's not. Yeah. It's just learning to do it. Obviously, when you're lying down, you've got a lot more leverage with your arms yeah. to engage the rail well, the yeah, board. Whereas when you're stood up, you've got to do it with just your toe uh-huh. heel. Yeah. That video of Julian Wilson surfing the finless uh, foam board, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a, it's a catch surf beater. Yeah. That's what it's called. And so I, I was actually just looking around the inter, interwebs for some more stuff on them because a friend of ours, Alex Wilkinson, was out surfing one of those 5'4 catch surf beater, yeah. like a little twin fin one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's a pretty good surfer and he looked like he was having a lot of fun on it. Yeah, well, they sponsored Jamie O'Brien. He does these big contests with yeah. them and things like that. So anyway, I was just looking around and they, they did a, a good video. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, but they've got Kalani Rob and a few other big faces to uh, go down and just surf these things all over up and down the coast. And do you know what? I, w- I was watching that video and then I was like, you know what? I really want one of these. This mm. looks fun. And like, I went on Amazon. They're like a, less than 200 bucks for yep. one of these 5'4 twin fins. You can surf them pretty well. Yep. And I just think catch surf, like, fo- okay, so foam boards have been around for a long time and they've always been the most uncool thing you can have in the lineup. Yep. And catch surf have done something really smart. They've got people like Jamie O'Brien and Julian Wilson and Kalani Rob to go and surf these things really good. And they're kind of like coming at it from the other side. They're going, if you're really good, you can even surf one of these. You know what I mean? And and the, they're like, they're dangling it there as a little marketing carrot in, under your nose. And yeah, I mean, it works. I want to go and buy one. Yeah. I think also there has also been a bit of a comic side to it where you can just go out in ridiculously unmakeable waves and never worry about getting hit by the board. Yeah, absolutely. Just throw yourself over the <laughs> Yeah. Because those boards were originally, they were designed as what's called blackboard beaters 
which is where in a lot of beaches in the United States, the lifeguards run up, you know, rather than a, a flag of any colour, they run up this, this black ball symbol, and that means no hard surfboards. Ah. And, and if the board is short enough and has no fins and is made of foam, you can still take it out. And if you choose to stand up on it or not, that's, that's, that's up to you, you. but it, it, there's a specification for a board that you could take into the water when the black ball's up. So when we're coaching, we deal a lot with people who approach surfing with various different, I, I was going to say sort of psychological disadvantages. And as far as they're so driven to be really good, they beat themselves up at every little mistake and it actually ends up getting in the way of their own progress because now they're getting distracted by their emotional reaction to their own performance rather than focusing on what they actually need to do on the next wave. And I found that you stick someone on a silly board out in the water and it just goes away. All of that goes away like that. And yep. suddenly they're out there having fun and messing around and you see that joy kind of flood back in. And as a result, you can then just start to reintroduce things that they want to work on again. Mm-hmm. I think there's this statement where you take a, a five, whatever, they, five, four luminous pink with tiger stripes on the bottom, uh, like beta board down into the surf and you paddle out. It doesn't matter how bad you surf. Yeah, right. It lowers the pressure. It lowers it the pressure. It yeah, other pressure. people are looking at you going, that guy is not taking this <laughs> seriously. And if you go over the falls, and, and, and the kind of that's your perception of what other people might be thinking of you, of course, in real life, they probably don't care either way because everyone's only thinking about their own surfing. But in your own head as well, yeah, it takes all the pressure off. Uh-huh. So I, I would, uh, I'm going to go and buy one and I'm going to go out and mess around with it. And I would urge any listeners who have ever found themselves getting stressed about their own surfing to just go and spend $200 on a beta board and go out and mess around with it next time to remind themselves how silly the whole process can be and how much fun it can be. On to the news then. It's actually, it's kind of been quite a quiet couple of weeks since our last episode, but there's been a few little stories cropped up in the news. The first one, sadly, the the wave pool at Surf Snowdonia that we've spoken about the last couple of episodes has already had its first breakdown which is a little unfortunate, but more excitingly, uh, it sounds like it's a fairly minor fix and they're going to get it done. More excitingly, they've got contests there in a few weeks. Uh-huh, I saw that. Yeah. That looks really cool. Yeah, Red Bull, Red Bull have put it up. They haven't said who's competing in it yet, but it's going to be proper sort of tournament style and it's it's not a time limit. They get five waves per each competitor and it's whoever surfs them best. It's funny because they've already, they don't know who's going, but they already have like, Heat one at this time, mm-hmm. heat two at this time, yeah, yeah. heat three at this time. And all they've got to do is put the names in. Yeah. So our friend Sam Wackley, who was on the last episode of the Surf Simply podcast, has been and surfed the wave pool since we last recorded. He has. He got in before they broke it. Yeah, well, he's, 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 he's an interesting one to talk to because he is a bit of a wave pool veteran as well. Yeah, because he is based out in Dubai where he surfs the Wadi wave pool on a weekly basis. So he's probably got more baseline wave pool experience than just about anyone I've met. And I mean, his feedback was kind of mixed. I mean, what I took away from what he said, and well, actually, he's written a really nice article about it, which we're going to put out in Surf Simply magazine in the next yeah. few days. But he, he basically wrote that the hardest bit is trying to figure out how to catch the wave, which he said was nothing like trying to catch a wave in the ocean. He yeah. said that the Wadi wave pool is quite kind of like catching a wave in the ocean, where it kind of you see it coming, it stands up, you paddle into it, the wave dissipates as it get, comes in. But with this one, you have to kind of apparently hold on to the netting underneath the pier. I was going to say, have you seen footage of it? It like pushes you, pushes you away from where the plunger is coming through. And then the first part of the wave looks really weird and like soft and slow. And people are kind of like trying to get, you know, trying to get going with it. And then it kind of, 
and then it amps up a bit and starts to drive down the line a bit more. Yeah. But it looks really weird to try and get into that wave. Sam wrote me an email just after he got back and I'm just reading his email. He said, if you miss the wave, you have to paddle in and walk up the side, essentially a walk of shame, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. When I visited, the majority of surfers were doing this every time. I heard the word frustrated so many times and I feel that this was mostly due to the peer push effects that you were just talking about um, that was causing those who treated the approach like a regular ocean wave. So what he went on to say was that after an hour or so he sort of got it figured out and then he had a really really fun session yeah and, it, and it's funny because it reminded me a bit of when we were down in Chicama in Peru and that's like a very soft long wave and when I'm surfing a lot of point breaks I like to surf out on the face a little bit because you're kind of prioritizing length of ride a little bit more and you don't want to get stuck behind um you know and I was kind of having a bit of a frustrating time with it and then a friend of ours who was down there just said, look, what you need to do is make sure all your bottom turns are a good two or three feet behind the white water yep. so that you're coming up you're staying and hitting the, the section. lip from behind. Uh -huh. You're not staying out in the face. And I, I just switched the way I was thinking and suddenly I had a ton of fun out there. Yep. And, and it just reminded me that waves can go from really frustrating to really fun just by getting one little piece of knowledge about how to surf it, whether it's been explicitly told to you by someone or whether you've implicitly figured it out just by being there for or, a while. Or by changing your approach. So the Surf Snowdonia wave doesn't fade out like the wadi wave pool it kind of keeps growing all the way in which was apparently you know a really fun part of it with the funny thing that sam was saying as well is that a lot of people are watching you as you're paddling in and he felt really self-conscious you could imagine that he felt a little bit of peer pressure how long did you spend thinking that up quite a while ollie's show notes are just blank apart from that one gag when do i put that one in um, so, I, I mean, I'm, again, we're, the three of us are going to be surfing it soon. I'm really looking forward to it. But um, one thing I quite liked about the format for the upcoming Red Bull contest is that they're going to begin it with hit, uh, the highest single wave score, which I guess you can do if you know all the waves are going to be the same, Yeah, which is kind of cool. The press release that Red Bull put out says, uh, quote, a series of head-to-head -head clashes will then go down themed on medieval jousting tournaments, which, set in the beautiful Welsh countryside with its hundreds of castles and rich folklore, will be an echo of the sporting combat from another time. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was entirely unnecessary. And so I decided to just see if jousting was big in Wales. Turns out jousting never happened in Wales, according to Wikipedia. Big in England, big in Germany, not so big in Wales or France. There we Apart go. from in 1972, when a bunch of actors recreated some jousting up in North Wales. So maybe that's the other time that he's re they're referring to. Maybe they're going to do Rue's old idea of having two surfers surfing away from each other with a bungee cord attached to them. Oh, and who can actually get down the line the furthest? Yeah. I thought that would be fun at Lakey Peak, which is like a really nice A-frame. Yeah, and you just, you just take off and you just go in opposite directions, pumping with a bungee cord. Imagine the you. cutback you could end up doing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who'd be the winner. Who stays on their board? I'm not sure. News item, anyone else? One thing I did notice that happened last week. Do you guys remember a couple of years ago, the exclusive use of, of cloud break and restaurants got taken away from the Tavarua Resort? Yeah. Yeah. And in a, a similar sort of scenario has just happened in the Maldives. Two of the, the best waves out there is uh, Sultans and Honkies, which are a, a right and a left that break off the tip of a, an island. They're, they're kind of two of the prime. Uh, you guys might have seen it. I'll post a picture in, in the show notes. If you were going to describe a surfing paradise, this would pretty much be it. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I, it's that island where you've got the swell hitting from the south, mm -hmm. and then you have a right breaking off one side of the island and a left breaking off the other, and they kind of break in towards each other. Yeah. So 
so if you had a, a westerly wind, one would be offshore and the other would be onshore and vice versa. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's sort of that island that you want to be marooned on. Yeah, if, if, you, if you were going to be marooned or if you were going to own a private island. So this is the interesting one. There was a, a development company were trying to build on the island and shut the waves down. And the Maldives government has now terminated that and has bought ownership of the island and they're going to keep the, them open. So what do you guys think about the whole concept of waves being for public use or privately owned? I like what the government have done here because I think it keeps the wave open to everyone rather than it becoming a very exclusive only for the moneyed uh, you know what i mean like if you if you privatize waves then you the only thing that will happen is the prices will go up and therefore it can only be the people who can pay can afford to surf at that place which i mean i guess solves the problem of crowds but at the same time it's not very uh, fair on the the locals yeah for one thing probably one of the most famous uh, private waves now in the world I would guess would be on Sumba that long left-hander which was famously called God's Left or Oki's Left and was featured in all of the um, early 90s Jack McCoy Oki movies you guys remember that wave? Yeah Nuluatu is it? That's yeah. what they call it now yeah. it's Nuluatu and, and so you, you, you'd only surf it if you stay at the resort there and that's definitely on my list of places I'd really like to go mm-hmm. and one of the reasons is because it's. I know I'm going to be surfing this amazing really uncrowded left-hander yeah. now if I I'm staying at the resort I'm really stoked about it if I'm not staying at the resort then it's terrible capitalism destroying the soul of surfing you know what I mean <laughs> exactly I was just about to say it was pretty nice at macaroni's when we uh, when they had the wave to ourselves yeah how nice is it sitting at macaroni's <laughs> yeah. at nine o'clock where most of all the boats apart from two I think have to legally go and you're just like ah oh, this is just wonderful you're like, oh brilliant all the capitalists have gone in <laughs> and just surf here by myself <laughs> The other thing that seems to, I mean, it, there's never 100%, but there were several things on uh, the mainstream news as well as within the surf world, kind of pushing that it's 90% now going into an El Nino cycle. And it looks like quite a strong El Nino cycle for the next six to 12 months, which is, is kind of interesting. So, yeah, it looks like the strongest El Nino cycle since 1997, which is the one that they called a super El Nino. Yeah. And I was kind of interested. I was kind of interested to know really what that meant for us in terms of weather and in terms of surface, because of course, El Nino is when the Pacific Ocean just raises a couple of degrees, mm-hmm. gets a little bit warmer. It's, uh, it's that much, is it, by a couple of degrees? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. It's That's it's a, a really weird. It's a, a shift in the ocean current. Basically, stops flowing from east to west, and you get this eddy current that pushes warm water back east, and you get this big buildup of hot water, basically off. It's kind of off Ecuador, Colombia, off the northern part of. South America going yeah. into sort of Central America. Yeah. And, and what it actually means in practical terms, and I won't pretend to understand the precise meteorological mechanisms that are connecting all of these things, although, like I said in the last episode, it, I, I would be really interested to get Professor Sam Perkis on the show so we can talk to him about it. It'd be it. nice to get somebody to sort of explain it in a few words. Yeah. I think it's rather a, a large... Monster, yeah, it is a bit of a monster of a subject, but basically what it means is you're going to have less hurricanes, you know, over on the Atlantic, so you're going to have less of those hurricane swells on the east coast of the US, you're going to have more wind swell in the Gulf of Mexico, and you're going to have more low pressure systems in the Pacific, but they're going to be further to the south, so it generally means that during going into the autumn and the winter, California and Central America are going to have more westerly swells rather than those northerly swells. Yeah. Um, it also means you get slightly lighter trade winds in Hawaii, and it means that you get more and more consistent north swells hitting Hawaii and I I, honestly I don't quite understand how that works with the north and the south swells both being greater but again I'd be interested to talk to Sam about it. It's basically down to the fact that the storms are created because you have a, a bigger difference a bigger difference between the the equatorial heat and the polar cold right and so if you have the equatorial heat raising up 
three or four degrees what that's going to create is a much much bigger difference between the pole and the equator which means that the storms become turbocharged the interesting thing about the weather systems that are created is that you can say and and this kind of actually relates back to climate change as well and i just thought i'd address this because it's something that you often see in the media but any given weather system you can't say whether it was caused by el nino or whether it was caused by uh, global climate change all you can say is that as a mean average over a year you're going to have more weather systems of greater intensity yeah so but you can't Uh ever predict any you can't just pin one thing down and say that is caused by el nino you can only look at the overall trend a large amount of data yeah right exactly and i just think it's interesting because it's the one thing you often hear kicking around in the media when you hear journalists saying is this down to el nino or is this down to climate change yeah uh, yeah yeah So the real big news this week, obviously, Tahiti. The men's contest in Tahiti at Chopu just finished. Jeremy Flores took the win. So happy to see him win. That was surfing against doctor's orders, wearing a helmet to protect him. He'd suffered a really bad fall a few weeks ago, which we mentioned on the podcast. He's still not really meant to be in the water. He's not 100% healed. And... Yeah, went out Good there man. and charged. So rolled he was his, rolled he, up his sleeves. He was surfing a few weeks or a few months ago out at Periscopes, which is the right hander at Lakey Peak out in Sumbawa in Indonesia. Which yeah, I've actually I used to spend every winter there and I've surfed it quite a lot and it's a pretty sketchy wave and he was doing airs there with Wiggly Dantis and various other people. And him and Wiggly Dantis, who he actually knocked out, I think, in his quarterfinal heat, was it? Or semi-final heat I forget but they're really good buddies and Jeremy was saying that after he woke up from the head injury because he was knocked out he didn't know who Wiggly Dantes was so I mean it was a pretty serious thing he had loss of memory for nearly a day after the injury happened it's pretty intense yeah I mean it wasn't just a small little reef cut I mean this was something pretty serious Uh, I've always been a really big fan of him I think that he has had a difficult ride and he's he's been kind of worn down by a long a long time of competing and to see him come back from this injury to even compete was amazing. And then to see him go on to win, uh, I think it's just fantastic. I was really, really stoked. Yeah. And it was such a fun contest to watch. It's definitely my favorite contest of the whole year, even though the waves weren't as epic as they were last year. Yeah, last year was amazing. But yeah, I think it's either that or Cloudbreak, isn't it? They're, they're the two sort of top for me. Yeah, and I mean, I like, I like Chopu more because it can be so quick people can get so many waves they can catch a wave and then be right back in the lineup getting another wave you can get you know two you can have two minutes left and need two excellent waves and get them at chopu that doesn't really happen at many other spots in the world cj i guess we've got to talk about he uh got his the andy irons award and Mm -hmm. was just charging looking for a while like he was going to go the distance and take the event home which i was kind of secretly hoping would happen yeah i was hoping he'd have it that would have been cool there was that one 10 point ride where he completely disappeared and i'd written him off the the wave spat the foam ball started to rumble out and then it was like a magic trick yeah have you guys ever noticed when you watch surf contests live and they're getting barreled and you, you're, you're sort of watching it and you're thinking, are they going to come out? Are oh, they not going to come out? Then they appear and you like leap off the chair. <laughs> but then when you watch the replay, it doesn't seem nearly as dramatic. And I, yeah. and I guess the fact that you don't know is really what uh-huh. creates the drama yeah, and tension. tension. Yeah. Yeah. Watching that 10-point ride of CJ's, even watching the replay over and over again, it still looks like there's no way he's coming out and he just appears like he's been photoshopped into the foam afterwards. It's really cool. Yeah. And Felipe Toledo as well did not do anything to dispel the idea that he's uh, good in small waves, but big waves isn't really his thing. Yeah, right. yeah you, uh, I think, has anyone ever, what, like a world tour heat finished with a 0.0? Well, I, I rewatched the heat again afterwards just to try and 
think to myself as a thought experiment. You know, if I'm his coach, what am I looking at and asking myself, what's, what's he done? What did he need to do differently? And, you know, he clearly took the approach. The heat before, there was a couple of big sets coming in. And he was obviously going with the, I'm going to sit out and wait for a couple of these bigger, more higher scoring waves. And Italo Ferrero just kind of got busy on the inside. He got some of those waves that were not huge, but they stayed open. They were long. He surfed them super well. And as the time ticked down, Felipe needed two big scores and he didn't have time to waste on yeah. the smaller ones. It's almost you know, like he got more and more stubborn. Like, I will wait for these waves. Yeah, and, yeah. and eventually he had to. He didn't yeah. really have a choice. Uh-huh. But I think, you know, the heats were 25 minutes or 30 minutes. Uh, I 30 think. minutes. So I, I think at the 15-minute mark, he should have said, okay, priority or not, I need to paddle in and start just building a house and getting something on the board. Absolutely, yeah. But I wonder as well if that was entirely a tactical error on his part or whether there was a little bit of nerves as well. Because if you watch his heat, the previous heat, the three-man heat that he surfed, mm-hmm. I guess the previous day, he got pretty smashed in that heat. There was one where he got barreled, came out of the barrel, just trimmed a little high and got pitched. And the whole thing just started bubbling over, you know, in, in about four or five feet of water. And he just got pitched and went down pretty hard. And yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I, won- I wonder whether it was just tactical or whether there was nerves in terms of the actual wave itself being intimidating. I think most of the, like, all the pros, even the guys that have been going there for years and years and years, whenever they do the, you know, the pre-contest hype, they all say, yeah, this wave still scares me. Yeah. I've been coming oh, here for 10 totally years yeah. and this wave still scares me. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think there's always going to be nerves in that decision. There was more injuries this year than last year when it was a lot bigger, did you notice, as mm-hmm. well? Yeah. And I, I think that's partly because the waves were less clean, so there was a lot more bumps and boils. Yeah, um, Maybe when it's smaller, it's breaking in slightly shallower water as well. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a big part of it. Yeah. But almost every heat, people were coming out of the water with pretty gnarly gashes, like Slater's arm was all opened up, pretty yeah. deep, and Kyoten as well. I heard apparently when it's, when it's bigger, you're more, there's just a good chance that you'll just get rolled across and into the lagoon, whereas when it's smaller, you're pretty much you're going to hit the reef. Yeah, so it's probably at that sort of nasty size where it's like just in between. Yeah, big enough to hurt but shallow enough to hit the reef I love that some of the manoeuvres that those guys were trying to do like Italo Ferrero going for that huge entirely unnecessary because he was already winning the heat three three, like reverse air right on that end bit where there's just no water there to land in and he already had Felipe Toledo comboed and yeah and he just went for this huge punt and Owen Wright's roundhouse cut back did you see that? Yeah. That's one of that's probably the best single cutback I've ever seen in surfing. <laughs> that was just so rad. And how about Medina and John John's heat? Yeah, that was pretty sick. They were both throwing away. They both threw they away both threw 9.07, away nine point didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that was another heat that I just watched start to finish again. I just thought it was so exciting. So just to to round up on Tahiti, then we had the Fantasy Surfer Kiwi Storm. You got the uh, highest overall points for the event. Austin, you are still in second place. And we actually had an email from Austin. Yeah, so Austin emailed in and suggested that he would come on the show as winner of uh, Fancy Surfer. And it did get me thinking, what do you guys think about the winner at the end of the year we have come on as a guest on the podcast? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I like that idea. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right, there we go. The prize is now officially that. Although, so... There is one small problem with that. What's that? So it's pretty close. Austin is winning at the minute, followed by Sam, followed by us. We're in third place. So we get to be on the show. <laughs> that's that's on. logistically very easy. It is. Logistically, that's an incredibly easy solution. I noticed that I, my personal team is down at 31, so there's no danger of me getting That's because you never podcast. change your team. <laughs> Consistency. Um, so the next events to keep an eye on, we've got the men and the women uh, heading to Trestles in Southern California. 
that event starts September 9th and the waiting period runs through until September 20th. So that's always a really, really fun contest to uh, watch. I'm really glad to see that the women are back there this year as well. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So our main feature this week, I wanted to touch on etiquette, but I wanted to touch on it from a slightly different angle than I guess is normally spoken about. You can find, you know, there's a whole list of slightly unofficial rules that everyone more or less abides by in the surf. And you can find variations on them on every surf website going. You can find it in all the books. So I'm pretty sure that anyone who's geeky enough to be listening to this podcast probably knows the the basics of surf etiquette. Yeah, I, w- I would think that that concept of uh, the person closest to the peak has priority and anyone else uh, yeah. uh, taking off in front of them is dropping in on them. I would think that that's pretty ubiquitous knowledge. Yeah, it's a pretty dynamic environment that we're out in. There's a lot of things moving around and it just helps to create a little bit of order to have those rules. Now, what I wanted to do, which is a little bit different, is I wanted to suggest four ideas, rules if you like, that are just going to sit over and above any situation dependent rules. Okay, I've mentioned it before, but I come from a, a bit of a sailing background. And there is in the boating world, there is a big set of, of rules, which are, are known as the International Regulations for Preventing Collisions at Sea. Catchy. Indeed. It's always normally shortened to Colregs. That's not a very good acronym. I like it when the acronym Spells something silly. Spells something silly that's vaguely to do with uh, the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the the coal regs, you know, it's a proper set of rules written by lawyers and enforced by by law enforcement, you know, all the way around the world. I'm going to borrow a few ideas from there because in that they have all these these rules for, you know, if this boat's going this way and this boat's going that way, this boat should turn, that, that boat should keep going, you know, whatever. But above and over the top of that, they have one very big rule, which is don't crash. That's a good rule. It's a good rule to have. It's, you know, avoid collision at all cost is normally how we shorten it to. It's obviously written in lawyer speak and it's a little bit longer, but we, we, we refer to it as avoid collision at all costs. And there's so many accidents that I've seen, accidents and collisions, that have actually been caused. You know, someone's made a silly mistake, but the collision was caused by the wronged party who, you know, holds their line, tries to force the issue. Yeah, and I'm, then, I'm yeah, in saying, the right, therefore I should keep I, going. I, exactly. Yes, I'm in the right. I'm going to keep going forwards. I tell you what, it's 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 a bit like the driving in the UK or in the United States where like right of way is an incredibly important, like this is my right of way. Yeah. You go to a lot of other countries, it's a much more kind of fluid and flowing yeah. uh, system. Yeah. Which, which which I think is probably better in the... Yeah, so, you know, that, that's, that's one thing that I wanted to bring in and just suggest that that sits over and above anything else. Yes, maybe it wasn't your fault that it happened. Yes, maybe that was technically your wave, but always just be, be prepared to take some sort of action to avoid the collision because, it, it, you know, nobody wants I was right written on their the, headstone. The affronted, the yeah. affronted. So the next point I then wanted to bring in is... Just being observant. If you go through the, again, the, the, the coal regs, any boat that's out in the water, there's a legal obligation to remain observant of where you are and who's around you and to maintain a, a watch. And I think a lot of the time when we're surfing, we just kind of go out there and bob up and down in the water and think about this and that and the other. And then that perfect wave comes around and 10 people all spin around for the wave. And none of them have any idea where anybody else is or, or what else is going on. I think that 90% of uh, accidents that happen out in the water happen because people are completely aware of the whole drop-in rule but didn't look and see the person. 
Absolutely. Or it, it even goes beyond that. You know, if, if you're sitting out there, one thing I tr- like to try and get people to do is as you're sitting out there and you're just bobbing up and down, there's no wave coming. Just have a look around you. You know, where are you in the water? Who's around you? How are they surfing? Are they, are they surfing straight into the beach? Are they going left and right? Are they doing big turns off the top? So that when that really good wave comes in, let's say a perfect left-hander comes in, you know who the... There's only going to be one or two people probably that you have to just check on that might have priority over you. Are they going or are they not going? You know, there's only going to be one or two people that are maybe sitting inside you that might be in the way. Whereas I think what a lot of people do is they wait, they wait, they wait. That perfect wave comes in. And then suddenly they've got to check on 10 or 15 people and work out where they all are and is the wave still coming and are they paddling? And it just, you go into this mental overload. I think a really good mental process that you can use to check if you're doing that yourself Mm -hmm. is if you're sitting there in a really crowded lineup, just ask yourself, okay, if a wave was to come and it was the perfect wave for me to catch, what would it look like? You know, imagine it. Where's it breaking? Where's it steep? What does it actually look like as it's coming towards you? And then ask yourself, okay, do I have priority on that wave? And if you can't imagine a wave coming where you have priority and and it looks like a good wave for you to catch and ride. Yeah, there's nobody a bit inside of you or in a slightly better right. position. Exactly. If you if you can't imagine that wave, if you can't simulate it in your mind, then you're sitting in the wrong place. And you need to paddle to somewhere where you can imagine that wave coming. Uh, I'll just qualify that by saying, of course, you might be sitting in a lineup where there's a queue and you're saying, like, that's okay, this guy's going to get one, this guy's going to get <laughs> yeah, one, and then I'm going to Otherwise gonna you're going to start yeah. paddling but, to the top. Yeah, but at most beach breaks where the peaks are shifting around and you can sit further out and wait for a set or further in and pick up more smaller waves, you know, you've got to be able to at least imagine that wave so that you know, okay, well, if a wave comes that fits into that um, sort of... Uh, Image. imaginary wave in my mind yeah. yeah, I have that kind of image I always like to imagine that you've got to draw the wave on a piece of tracing paper and hold it up and then you're just going to wait for a wave to actually appear which fits into that <laughs> image yeah. and when that comes you know okay I'm good if you can't do that mentally then you know you're sitting in the wrong place it surely only has a limited application in a beach break though just because of the random nature of beach breaks like you could imagine that a wave is going to become there but it's really to do with where the peak actually arise which could be anyone's guess yeah, which I'm, is so the tricky thing so I'm not saying that that's the only wave that you would catch, but it's more reversing it the other way around is if you can't even do that, then you're sitting in the wrong place. Like there might be lots of other kinds of waves you could catch, but that is the, the bare minimum. If you can't even imagine a wave coming in, that's when you need to move. For yeah. example, the three of us right now are sitting in more or less a, a straight line talking to each other. Now, Ollie, you're on one side, I'm on the other side, Rue's in the middle. There is no wave that can come where Rue has going to have priority over you and me. I feel like if a good wave came through right now, I'd probably have it. <laughs> I, I, I sat here on purpose. But all the thing is, all, all, all of us thinking. three are all so nice when we're out surfing that we'd all be like, "Oh, are you, are you I'm, okay? Are you going? Are you going?" And then Brad would just paddle over and take off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Brad. <laughs> Poor us. Uh, <laughs> so my third rule: so we've got don't crash. Observe the lineup. My third rule is going to be communicate. And this, to be fair, this generally is in, you know, the standard set of rules that you find on, on websites and in books. Just taking it, you know, onto that next level. Like if, if you're going left or right, call it. Just just shout it out, even if there's not particularly anyone around you. It just Well, I think that it's worth calling out if someone is around you. I love, I'm not sure if there's no one around. I love the idea of just you sitting out on your own in a, in well, a deserted 10-mile yeah, okay. stretch of coastline. I am going left. Left! <laughs> I, think, I tell you what, it sometimes works quite well where you're like, even if you're not in priority position, you can be like, 
I'm going left on this one. And it's like a mind bullet. Everyone's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and then you suddenly emerge as the... Uh, as the Fran- Francella, the, one of the other coaches, she does it a lot. But she's like, I'm going to go left on this one, guys. And you're like, okay. Oh. And it's, and it's really nice, actually, because then you can think like, oh, I'll just paddle there and I'm going to take the right. Because, you know, yeah. how often does a wave peel left and right and then you don't know which way the person's going and you let it go and you could have gone the other yeah. way on it. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. A- I think communication is super important. How often do you see people in a lineup sitting there, everyone's silently trying to second guess who's going and what's going on. Absolutely. Like someone has told them they're not allowed to just go, are you going on this one? Or, yeah. well, I think yes, this I is the thing. I think generally because surfing's such a solo sport, we go out by ourselves a lot of the time you're bobbing up and down the water you don't know the 10 people that are immediately around you and it's kind of a little intimidating to just start up that conversation but uh, you know I think as soon as you do actually the whole situation very quickly becomes less intimidating well I think also in the in the former situation where no one is talking to each other it's really the most uh, blunt person that's going to catch all the waves isn't it you'll always get that one or two those one or two people that don't mind paddling around people and getting waves and actually if the other people start to communicate a little more that would dissolve that situation quite a lot more yeah absolutely So it ends up making it a little more fair i mean that's a good point yeah and you know if you see someone you know someone's paddling for a wave and you can see somebody's up yeah just call that out yeah you know someone someone's on the wave even going and paddling out into a lineup and just starting to open up the lines of communication with people when there isn't a wave coming is a really smart tactic for getting more waves. Mm-hmm. You know, you paddle out into a lineup, everyone's sitting there stony faced and silent staring out to sea and you're kind of like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. You know, and you just kind of just start opening up the dialogue with people, congratulate people when they get a good Absolutely. wave. Absolutely. I love you know, giving just, someone oh, a nice hoop. wave, you know, and, 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 and it's funny because if you do then make a mistake and you accidentally drop in on someone, they'll be like, oh, that's all right. That was that guy. He's kind of okay. Well, and also I think if you're tense and you're tense about who's going to go for the wave, I miss a lot of waves just because I feel like, oh, maybe someone's going to go on that. Oh, oh, and then the moment passes and you're like, oh, okay, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So I think breaking that tension is a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, pa- just- have a smile on your face, hoot and holler for the other guy when he gets a good wave. Yeah. You're, you're a hoot and a holler man I'm more of a just a, a quiet smile and a nod because I always feel yeah. like if someone gets a wave that's not that good and you give them a massive hoot it's like a little bit no, but, I, but I feel like a small hoot a small hoot when you're yeah. on the shoulder is like <laughs> it's, just, it's a little bit like a like on Facebook it's yeah. like just going you know yeah. what this is subtle and it's alright but I think you're okay and like you know yeah. I'm a friendly chap yeah. and like usually that will that will melt down anyone's kind of tense attitude towards you I, I wonder say. how many of our American listeners just like spat their coffee out at the idea of going hey I'm just a friendly chap <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to like your wave on Facebook so the uh, my last rule my, my number four is going to be take care of everybody else like take care of other people in the water it's kind of weird because it, it is a really individualistic sport we paddle out a lot of the time we don't know who else is out there but we paddle out and we're going out there to get our fulfillment that's going to make us feel good about it and if there's too many other people in the water trying to do the same thing we get a bit bummed out about it it's it's a kind of a selfish sport in a way but we call this etiquette it's not like rules it's it's an etiquette etiquette's about being a good citizen and i think if you're going to be a good citizen you want to be looking out for each other you know if someone gets sucked over the falls or takes a nasty wipeout like keep an eye on them you know do they do they bob up are they in one piece if if there's someone out there, you know, a beginner that maybe looks like they've drifted a little bit out of their comfort zone, you know, maybe just paddle over and check on them. We see are how citizens doing. of the sea. Absolutely. And, you know, if someone's in a, stuck in a rip, do they need a hand? You know, be prepared to paddle over and, and, and help them. Does that mean you can do like a citizen's arrest if somebody drops in? <laughs> <laughs> really start like a, a mini community. Yeah. I, I love how the 
priority of etiquette should change because the presumption when you first start thinking about it is well how can I maximize the amount of waves that I get and not be intimidated by the crowd yeah. which is an understandable sort of entry-level approach to etiquette but as you surf more and become more experienced that might not be the priority and hopefully as you say the priority shifts more to other people and I love that Taj Burrow said Taj Burrow wrote a book called Taj Burrow's Book of Hot Surfing like probably about a decade ago it's a really really good book and it's kind of kind of funny with a lot of Aussie humor in it mm -hmm. but he's talking about etiquette in there and he goes over the key points about dropping in and closest to the peak and all of that stuff and then he said when I'm out surfing the main thing I worry about is getting too many waves you know he's Taj Burrow and he can pretty much get all the waves he wants even if it wasn't for the fact that he's such a good surfer people want to get out of his way and watch him surf and who wants to be that guy that dropped in on Taj Burrow on the one time he's surfing near you yeah. so you know he's really aware and he, he was talking about counting the amount of waves that the people sitting around him have yeah so this comes down to that observing the lineup you know my, my rule too you know just being aware of who's around you yeah and uh, you know it's something that I've always tried to be aware of when I sit out there and there's like guy A over there who I've seen get 25 waves and then guy B over there who's really been struggling you know and if and if a wave comes in and I could I've got priority on either of them if it's guy guy a you know I'll be like yeah sure I'm gonna go he's had a bunch of waves and that's fine I mean not drop in on him if I've got priority if I've got priority over guy b and I know he hasn't got a wave and I've got a bunch I I, I would say that's really bad etiquette for me to go and I'm not wouldn't presume to tell anyone else they should or shouldn't go but that's how I approach the lineup and that's how that's how people who I respect approach the lineup they're like I've got 20 waves this guy hasn't got one yeah, even though I'm closer to the peak in my mind my personal surf etiquette dictates yeah go man absolutely yeah it's almost adding a second layer of etiquette really isn't it it's yeah. like there's the basic rules but then also there's like just being a, a decent being a decent chap. human being, being a decent decent chap. Chap. You, I mean you can have that very childlike approach to etiquette which is if the rules say you can have something, you should grab it. And then you can have a more mature approach to etiquette, which is essentially like approach to happiness, which is you try and make other people around you happy and hope you get some along the way. Well, this is a life-affirming podcast. It's yeah. lovely, isn't it? Okay. Well, so with those four rules in mind, what I just wanted to do then is just think about some of the, the classic situations and just show how if you apply these four rules, because it can be a bit stressful, you know, you're sitting out there, you, you were saying, oh, you know, you don't want to drop in on anyone. You can kind of get worried about it. Like I just wanted to apply these four rules then to those situations you can see how it should end up with everyone kind of rubbing along okay without without upsetting each other rubbing along okay well you know yeah, everyone likes a good okay. rub. <laughs> i think that's a good way of putting it so for example the drop-in rule like if somebody's up and riding if somebody's caught the wave they're on their feet and they're going along they have a a right of way if you like and we you know nobody else should be catching the wave and getting in their way well if we use my second and third rule, so communication and observing the lineup, then that should happen pretty easily because when the wave comes in, I already know that there's a good chance that Ollie's going to catch the wave. So I've only got to check on that one extra person. It's super easy as I spin round to just keep an eye on Ollie. And if Ollie's being sensible and communicating, he's going to be shouting that he's going left. So I know to keep clear, at which point, it's going to be very difficult for me to get in Ollie's way because both of us have ensured that, that we're keeping an eye on that situation. Mm -hmm. If that all failed and, and I did accidentally drop in on Ollie, then rule number one comes in and, you know, we try and not collide, which may mean that Ollie straightens out rather than holding the wave. You know, hopefully it means that I do this, this, the clever thing and just pull off the back of the wave and get out of the way. But it, it may be that Ollie straightens out, but at least that way both of us leave that potentially dangerous situation in one piece 
And the final thing that we're going to do is I'm obviously going to apologise to Ollie and we're both going to check that each other are all right. I think that the bottom line is that you paddle out and you've either got respect for the people around you. You can still follow the etiquette rules and not have respect for people. Mm -hmm. So you've either got respect for them whereby the etiquette extends into what you were just talking about yeah. or you're just you don't have respect for the people around you but you're still following the rules to some extent but you're kind of still maybe taking more waves than you know it's sort of those grey area rules that maybe you're not following as much so you've either got respect for people around you or you haven't if you're in that situation in the lineup where you feel like someone is taking advantage of their either increased ability over you or usually an increased board size mm-hmm. and they're taking more than their fair share of waves without breaking any rules of etiquette. That can be a very frustrating situation to be in. You know, classically, the longboarder or stand-up paddleboarder is sitting further out, or the guy that knows this reef break and isn't quite so intimidated by that early barrel inception keeps paddling around you and sitting deeper. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult situation to deal with. My advice, anecdotally, is not to confront the person in an angry way. You know, it doesn't really ever get you anywhere. It's more no. likely just to make them think, oh, well, I don't like that guy. I'm just going to make sure they don't get anywhere. Yeah, it kind of exacerbates the situation. Yeah, which will, yeah. just from a purely selfish point of view, it won't really get you anywhere. I think that the best way to approach it is to begin with, just open up the lines of communication in a really friendly way. Are you going on this one? Not in a sort of like, oh, are you going on this one? You know, but just quite genuinely, you know, you see the guy, he's paddling around you. He sits four feet deeper than you are on a, in a little reef break. And you, you just go, a set comes in and you just say to him, oh, mate, are you going to go on this wave? And quite often that person will either say yes and go, but they'll be much cooler the rest of the session because you've just like brought it out into the open. Like this is the thing. You, 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 I asked you if you were going, you know, we're now aware of this rotation that you're not doing. Mm-hmm. And also quite often they'll just go, no, you go. And the amount of times I've surfed at reef breaks with surfers much better than me who've been much more comfortable and I've felt really intimidated. And just by using that tactic, as they paddle around me, a set comes in and I just say to them, oh, hey, are you going on this wave? They start calling you into waves. And, yeah. and from them, what they feel like is, I'm the best surfer, I'm the most confident, I deserve some sort of respect. And in their mind, what's happening is, oh, now this less good surfer who's less confident is giving me this respect. They're asking my permission, essentially, to go on a wave. Mm-hmm. I can be magnanimous and give them this wave. And suddenly, the two of you are share, sharing waves and hooting. And I find that's a really, really good ta- tactic for defusing the situation. Cool. So yeah, next time that you're out in the water, and particularly if you're out in a slightly busy lineup, try applying those four ideas to to the situation and try to preempt as much as possible, pre-plan, pre-think the situation. Because the more that you have to process in the moment of that perfect wave coming, the more likely it is that we're going to end up making mistakes. For our superhero of surf this week, as, as everyone probably noticed, Google did a little doodle of uh, Duke Kahanamuku on, I guess it would have been his 125th birthday if he was still alive. Yeah. So I just thought it'd be cool to talk about him for a little bit. But if you're interested in finding out more about him, Matt Arnie just wrote a really cool piece called Celebrating the Duke for Surf Simply Magazine, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. So Duke Kahanamoko was actually born in Honolulu in 1890. He had nine brothers and sisters, and he was called Duke after his dad, and his dad had the name Duke uh, as a tribute to the Duke of Edinburgh, who'd visited Hawaii back in 1869, which I didn't know. I thought that was kind of cool. In 1911, at 21, he left the Outrigger Canoe Club, and he formed the Huinalu Club with a couple of friends. Uh, and that summer, he ent- entered a swimming contest in Honolulu Harbour. So the uh, the Outrigger Canoe Club was a uh, 
not quite, but it, it was definitely a a slightly more high class, or not quite, but almost white only uh, beach club. The uh, the Hui Nalu was was I mean it was initially it was just a bunch of guys hanging out under a coconut tree I think, and uh, but it was very much more uh, a local club for the for the Hawaiian guys, and they used to compete for a lot of contests against the outrigger. So shortly after starting the club, he beat the world record for 100 yards freestyle swimming by 4.6 seconds, which is a huge margin. Yeah. And that suddenly put him on the on the world stage. And he travelled to the US uh, for the Olympic trials later that year and broke the 200-meter freestyle world record too, mm-hmm. and then won a gold and silver medal for the 100 meters and 200 meters freestyle at the 1912 Stockholm Olympic Games. He competed in three more Olympic Games in his competitive career over the next 20 years. And on his way home from the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, he stopped off at Atlantic City in New Jersey to give swimming exhibitions and introduced surfing to the east coast of America. In 1914, he travelled to Australia where he gave a surfing exhibition down there. And the cool thing I like about that trip was that he actually shaped his surfboard out of a local tree. Yeah which I think is just the the coolest thing, the coolest, most soulful kind of uh, surfing anecdote I've ever heard. And And the first person he taught to surf was a woman. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, so anyway, he he really introduced surfing to Australia as well as the East Coast of the States and California. He was also elected, and I think this is quite cool, uh, the High Sheriff of uh, Honolulu. 12 times in a row so he's you know obviously a really respected and liked local character on Hawaii yeah. as well and he was in the surfing magazine hall of fame in 1966 and he was uh, also inducted into the swimming hall of fame in 1965 the only person to be in both I also like that when the uh, position of sheriff of city and county of Honolulu was abolished in the 60s he was given the official title by the state of Hawaii the ambassador of Aloha which is just the coolest title uh, that I've ever heard. Um, And he was just a a really amazing character, such a positive representative of the sport all over the world. Uh, And this was kind of, we've got to remember, this was back in the days before surfing was this sort of counterculture that had that whole edge to it, the sort of anti-establishment kind of almost like punk edge to it. Yeah. This is when surfing was seen as like a clean living, healthy, I'm an Olympic swimmer, I'm a surfer. And uh, in that way, he kind of reminds me of, of, you know, the image that Mick Fanning brings to surfing now is that same kind of clean living, yeah. healthy, it's a sport where athletes kind of approach. And personally, I think that it, that was a very cool thing. And I know a lot of people love the counterculture of surfing and it certainly has its charm and makes for great... Uh, movies and books and stories but I actually much prefer what Duke Kahanamoko brought to the sport so yeah hats off to Duke and uh, happy 123rd birthday so last thing then is our regular what to watch feature there's been a few pretty cool movies but the first one I wanted to just touch on quickly we mentioned a couple of episodes ago uh, we were talking about women surfing big waves and you mentioned that you'd like to see a documentary about some of the the women that are charging big waves a little bit more and our former colleague Kerry Ann got in touch with me on the back of that and mentioned she'd been to a film festival in New York last week and saw a screening of a movie called The Wave I Ride which is all about Paige Alms who has is one of the women who's been charging big waves recently. I found that the trailer for the movie, which I'll put on the show notes, the movie itself has not been released yet, but she said it was well worth keeping an eye on if uh, if there's a little film festival near you at all. Anything caught, caught your eyes 
the last week or so. There's a movie that Shane Dorian put out, just a short on Vimeo called Plate Lunch, which just yeah. reminded me how amazingly cool Shane Dorian is. And sorry, listeners, if you can hear a lot of uh, strange noise in the background, there's nine puppies outside my door that are just barking away at the moment. They're pretty cute. They are pretty cute. Uh, yeah, Shane Dorian, just amazing. I don't know what the right-hander is that he's surfing at the end of that section. No, it's a, it's a cool little movie, that, isn't it? But yeah, that thing is just monstrous. I don't know if it's massive P-Pass, possibly, or some other wave out in Indo, maybe massive Lance's right or something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just uh, Shane Dorian is, is one surfer who I just have so much respect for. I just think he's such an understated uh, guy. There's one amazing... Um, a clip of him getting towed into huge you know, 20 foot plus chopu yeah and uh he's also got the gopro camera on his head and it kind of just flicks between him between and the two the shots and usually the thing about gopro cameras is that even big waves look small yeah. you know small waves look big big waves look small everything kind of looks the same yeah for, from the pov of the gopro but not this one yeah i mean you see shane pulling into this barrel and then you see it switches to the gopro angle and he's so deep yeah and it, uh, it makes you feel a little bit sick watching it. So it, that's, it that's, that's, such a, that's a cool thing. For anyone that's a bit geeky about surfboards like me, uh, Epic TV have done a really cool little series. I can't embed them, unfortunately, in the show notes, but uh, I'll post a link to, uh, I think they've got five or six episodes out now. And each one is just a short movie where they zero in on, on one board in particular. Uh, the most recent was on some of the old sort of 70s uh, pipeliner guns just yeah really really nice little little mini documentaries where they really focus in on the the boards as much as they're focusing in on the riders it was cool watching that interview with uh, kelly from tahiti as well i don't know if you're going to put that in the uh, show notes it's only a couple yeah, of minutes long yeah. but the thing i really liked about it was that kelly said that he was quite happy with winning a level 11 titles but 12 or 13 would be nice too yeah and that's the first time i've heard him talk about 13 titles I mean, because every year with Kelly, you're kind of like, well, this is presumably his last year on tour. And it's kind of this un, um, sort of unspoken thing that you think, well, if he won his 12th world title, that would be it. That he'd probably then like, you know, yeah. hang up his uh, hang up his boards. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him go on for 13. I mean, that's fantastic. I'd love to see him competing when he's, I don't know, going into his late 40s. So It's a cool attitude that he's got about it, isn't it? Yeah very very cool I would have loved to see him do well at Chopu actually I mean he did do well but you know like he said he's never happy with a quarter final finish and is he, is he still in the title race yeah I mean kind of he's sixth at the moment there's a there's a good gap between him and everybody else but it's actually it's really really tight going into the back end of the tour now everyone's so close at the minute that there's there's a lot of surfers that still you know if if a couple of people have because we've still got four events to go yeah if there's a couple of surfers that have bad events there's there's a lot of guys that are in contention because nobody's had like a a stellar runaway year. Yeah, um, I like it when it's like that. I like it when it comes down to pipe. I think there's I think there's only like fifteen hundred points between uh, first place and fifth place or something like that. Like it it's so close. Well, it'll be good to watch. I'm looking forward to trestles. That'll be fun. The next three events are all pretty fun. Okay, that's all for now, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're actually going to be taking a little break now. Uh, Myself and Oliver are heading over to Europe pretty shortly. Uh, Rue, you're heading over to Indonesia. So it's going to be a little difficult for us to get together and podcast. But I think the plan is that the the next podcast episode that we put out will probably be in October. And we're going to go on on holiday over September. We actually were working out earlier... Just uh, if you think we're being a little bit slack by taking a month and a half off, uh, listeners, we were working out earlier how long goes into making the podcast. And more or less, it's about 
two hours that Harry and I put in each preparing the show notes. Then we each do three hours of research. So we're looking at six, about about sort of 14, 15 hours before we even start recording. Then it's usually like a two-hour record for three of us. So that's another six hours. That mm-hmm. takes up to around uh, like low 20s. Then Harry puts another four hours of editing, so around 25. And then I put in another hour or two of editing. And then it takes about another hour to get everything uploaded and labeled and tagged. And I have to and do the show notes, which normally takes me a couple of hours. Yeah, so in terms of man hours, each episode probably takes 30 plus hours. So um, yeah, we don't feel too guilty about taking a, a little, a bit little of break. break. Yeah, <laughs> much as we enjoy the show. Excellent. The three of us, the next time we sit down, will be in Wales at the Wave Pool. Woo. We'll record, hopefully, sitting poolside in uh, Surf Snowdonia. Other than that, um, I hope you guys have a very nice September. It's a, a fantastic time to be a surfer for most of the world. I think September's always pretty good fun. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Surf Simply.